You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another show. One of the last shows of the 2020 season, I guess, for winding down the year. It's really crazy to think about how long this season has been and how far we've come. And here, as of recording this, sitting on the precipice of the NBA Finals, each series in the East and the West currently stands at 3-1 Lakers ahead of the Nuggets in the Western Conference in the, in the Orlando Bubble Western Conference uh, Hotel edition and then in the East the Heat with the 3-1 edge over the Celtics. So today I wanted to discuss sort of a big lesson or lessons kind of like things that have jumped out to me from the bubble and You could go in so many different directions here in terms of neutral court, no crowd, uh, the backdrop of the shooting and things of this nature. But there's one specific element that I keep coming back to that kind of jumps out as a theme that is a big takeaway for me. And we'll get to exactly what that is shortly in the show. But there's a line of thinking that led me to this particular takeaway or or learning that I want to talk about today. So let's start with that. And that line of thinking starts with an idea that I've mentioned before. I think I mentioned it over the summer, which is that rookies are no longer rookies. It's something that's said seasonally when you get to the end of the season and you say, well, a rookie isn't really a rookie. You'll hear coaches say it. A rookie isn't a rookie anymore because he's been through the 80 games and he's gotten past the rookie wall and now he's in the playoffs and he's been in the league for a year or nine months. And there's truth to that. But the thing is, that's still what we call a rookie by the time the season ends. It's their first go round through a full season. And even though, you know, from that perspective, they're not as wet behind the ears as when they were selected in the draft. That's what we think of as a rookie. But this year, we literally don't have that situation. We have a unique situation in NBA history. We have first-year players who have had the luxury of an extra offseason, right? They've had an extra offseason. The break gave them, we shut down in March, and we came back in July, August-ish. So the break gave them at least four months, four to five months, something comparable to what they would have had normally. Some guys get to play summer league, so that didn't apply here. But if you are a rookie, when you came back, it was kind of like coming into your second year because you had your first offseason to improve. The exact same thing can be said about sophomores. If you're in your second year, you get a second offseason to go back and work on your game, work on your body, and synthesize the things that you learned 
on your team, right? Like the coach wants to drill in a certain cut or a certain read or a certain rotation. Uh, although, as I as I talked about with Dave Dufour a couple weeks ago, it's hard to practice your defensive rotations in an empty gym. But from a cognitive standpoint, like the way your mind works and grows and makes new connections, uh, you got a lot of reps and then you got to take a step away and get a different perspective and work on them and come back. And so we know that this is associated with natural growth, right? We know that this kind of practice where you're not actually traveling with the team and playing games and doing walkthroughs every day. We know where this is we the place where we see players grow and improve tremendously, especially when they're young, especially when they're on the early part of that aging curve. First year, second year, third year, you know, if you're 22 or 23, there's still a lot of growth there. If you're 20 or 21 for a lot of players, you could have rapid growth, the leap. And so, Typically, when that happens, when a guy goes away and then comes back when he's young and is improving, when the new season starts, you may have roster changes that you have to kind of uh, fit your new skills in with. You know, okay, I went and I learned all this stuff and the coaching staff drilled this into me and I improved this skill in the offseason, but now they have me playing a slightly different position because we just signed another free agent backup point guard or something. Well, that didn't happen here. Coaching changes also are another big variable from offseason to offseason where you might change kind of a system or an entire approach offensively. That didn't happen here either. So it's a very unique experiment. It's a very unique, you know, I'm not someone who thinks that championships need asterisks. They always have different circumstances where you should just, and we'll talk about it a little bit later in this episode, where you should just try to drill down and contextualize and understand the strengths and weaknesses of a team, regardless of whether they won or lost. And if they were a team that won a championship, you know, you can look at the path they took, but that doesn't mean they need an asterisk or something like that, right? It doesn't mean that they took a totally unique path. Winning in basketball requires avoiding injuries and all these other things. Okay. But in this case, I do think when you're listening to a game and you hear someone say, these are the most points a rookie has scored since, you know, Magic Johnson in the 1980 NBA Finals. Well, that's an amazing accomplishment, but these guys aren't really rookies anymore. So whatever kind of um, grammatical device you want to put in there on your ledger sheet, we should at least acknowledge that these players are different. And, And that is a small technicality. That's a triviality. But the point of this episode is not to be trivial. The point of this episode is to say, what can we learn from seeing these guys jump forward? And here's where we get to my big lesson and takeaway. What can we learn from seeing these guys have another offseason, come in as different players, materially different basketball players in their rookie year, their second year, whatever, and evaluate them without having a regular season to give us a nice, rich sample size. That's the rub. And this really applies for teams. I'm thinking about it at the team level even more than the player level. For so much of the work I've done historically and recently about evaluating players and growth, 
one of the things I did for Patreon subscribers last year was at the NBA Finals evaluate all the key players in the series to try to provide a perspective of this short-term five or six game evaluation and what you look for and how you think about teasing out shooting luck and and context. You know, uh, I think it was in 2012, kind of when he was at the end of his old man run with the Celtics, Kevin Garnett played a lot of center in the series against Philadelphia. And it was sort of a small ball, you know, they had no one to match up with. So the Celtics could play him at center and still have an effective size advantage. And he ended up getting a bunch of easy buckets down low because of this. And I think his numbers in that series, especially scoring wise, and maybe even rebounding were huge compared to surrounding playoff series or seasons. And the literal way to look at this is to let, let's say, for instance, that was the only playoff series that he played that year. A literal way to look at this would be to go, wow, what a resurgence. Kevin Garnett, incredible offensive playoff season and player in 2012 uh, because of the numbers he put up. But I think that's just part of the context. I think the way the team uses you or what a defense does. You know, if, a de- if, you're, a, if you're a guard and a defense starts trapping you like crazy then your assist numbers should go up. Your shot creation should go up in theory because that's the way you punish that. And as a result, your scoring numbers would go down. And so you can go into a series, a single series, and have your scoring numbers go way down and play better and have a great, huge impact series on offense. And so this idea of like evaluating players in very small samples at more than just the literal level of what they accomplished without taking into account context or skill or shooting luck or anything, I think I think it's something that is rarely talked about. I think it's something where sometimes guys play great games, and if their team doesn't win or they don't score a lot of points, it doesn't get too much attention. But again, this isn't trivial. This is what's happening right now. We've got all these teams in the bubble, all these players in the bubble, and yes, it is possible that the bubble itself is the confounding variable. It is possible that when we go back to whatever the 2021 season looks like, that these things regress down. But I'm going to make the argument today that I don't think we're seeing bubble-specific changes. I think instead we're seeing the fact that these young players have grown and changed materially with an offseason, just like they would have in any normal other offseason. But this is still a continuation of the 2019-2020 season. And as a result of that, we did not have an adequate sample size in the regular season to evaluate them. The Heat, for instance, and we'll talk about some Heat players right now. The Heat, are they a 45-win team? I mean, to me... to take their regular season numbers at face value and try to bake that into the quality of the team we're seeing out there right now and even the sort of predictions you would make about a team, I don't want to say it's irrelevant, but it's almost irrelevant. This is clearly an improved team. One, Goran Dragic's play, as I've mentioned before, is clearly a level up. He's he's kind of giving them another all-star level offensive player. So that's one element. But the younger players, I mean, let's start with Bam Adebayo. Bam Adebayo, he is 23 years old. He's in his 
third season ostensibly. He continues to improve. And I'm not sure how many specific things I can point to to say he's taken a leap. He is, he's 23. But for instance, his free throw shooting is way up in the bubble. Is that a fluke? Or is that, you know, that little mid-range floater that he likes in that roll game when he gets in that little sweet spot pocket in the paint? Is all that touch and shooting slowly getting better? And the time off has improved it. Are his defensive reads getting better? Is he becoming, you know, more, is he he's kind of achieving his athletic prime? Think about Giannis's develop development athletically in the last few seasons. Is that is that what's happening with Bam? I don't know. I think I don't think Bam is a clear-cut example of someone who's improved from like a rookie to a second year or is it jumped up the age curve because of this offseason. But I do think his teammate Tyler Hero is. Before I forget, we got a really special offer going at the Athletic through October 9th of 2020. You can get an entire year for $1, theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketball. Head on over there. That's how you support this podcast. That's how you support all Thinking Basketball endeavors. Uh, but it's also an awesome deal. You know, I've had many of the athletic writers and podcasters on the show. I consume them regularly. Seth Partnow is doing a daily analytics look around, which just has all kinds of media information based on what's happening in the playoffs. Theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketball. $1 a month for your first year on that subscription that's available through October 9th. Tyler Hero in the regular season using my box model of offense was basically a neutral player. And now he's like plus 1.5. And he had better three-point shooting in the regular season. So this isn't a case of hot shooting. I think you can see it in the numbers and it's there are clear areas to demonstrate growth, more comfort passing, more comfort with the handle, uh, getting into, he's always moved well without the ball this year, but kind of getting into his shots, using his size to be able to shoot over smaller players more comfortably, and then just the confidence that comes with repetitions. I think given the way Hero played, if they played the postseason in April instead of September, he probably would have had a strong postseason anyway. But this is... This is a much better player. This is the kind of observation. And remember, Hero's not even 21. He's like 20 and a half or something, 20 and two thirds, somewhere in there. And so he's early in the growth curve, that, that young age where if you make a connection or something clicks or your confidence jumps up and you realize, wait a second, I can get this shot off all the time. You know, he's so good at, at kind of change of direction, athleticism, herky-jerky moves, his footwork, all of these things are starting to come together. You get a materially better player than the guy you had nine months ago. Think about it. We'll We'll come back to Miami, but think about how you would evaluate that because, yeah, they played a couple bubble games, the, the, the seeding games, but those had more of a preseason, you know, some guys aren't trying. Uh, I shouldn't say some guys aren't trying like individuals. Some teams aren't putting out their best lineups because they're just kind of working themselves into shape and building chemistry for the playoffs. It wasn't a consistent regular season environment. That's that's where I'm going. And so you had eight games that were inconsistent after a long layoff. And here we are in the playoffs. And as I've talked about before, you only get that sample size of your opponents. So They've played, what, I think tonight will be their 15th game 
in the postseason, and they've done it against three different opponents. That's it. If we could get multiple years with the exact same team with the players in their prime, which we often see when teams go on successful runs and things like that, then it would be a heck of a lot easier to make some conclusions about their playoff strengths and weaknesses and connect the regular season and things like that. But we don't have the luxury of doing that. We don't have that information. A last season's regular season information is outdated, not because three or four months went by. That can happen sometimes if a team makes ch- trades and uh, young players take a leap and things like somebody gets injured and there's a replacement. It's not because of that. I've said this many times in when I do all-time player evaluations, we have to be, I think, willing to concede that three months or six months passing or something doesn't materially change great basketball players when they're playing at their best. You know, you don't just go 2009 June LeBron to 2010 October LeBron, huge difference or something. So it's not just the time. In this case, it's the off-season. It's the fact that they seem like a different team. And I think that's really throwing people when they say, oh, we've got a Cinderella run here. It would be crazy if this team won the championship or whatever. It's really messing up the narratives. It's really playing tricks on the narratives because we want to go to the traditional narratives that we use. Uh, you know, this guy's the best player. These guys have two stars and they overcame this and blah, blah, blah. And We're just kind of basing everything on outdated regular season information right now, especially with a team like Miami. I think other teams like the Lakers, the Lakers don't really have any young players moving through this part of their growth curve. Kuzma, Kyle Kuzma and Alex Caruso are kind of the closest to that. They're in their third year, but Kuzma's 25 years old. I thought if anything, Kuzma's improvement came last offseason where he went from a seriously problematic defensive player to now a kind of not as problematic defensive player, like a pretty big jump on that end from my eye. Caruso's over 26. He's he's on the other side of 26. He's closer to 27, still in his third year just because of circumstances. So I think anything you're seeing with Caruso is just coming from that like Bruce Bowen, veteran, experience, get to play in the league and understand where his strengths as a player can be exerted and the coaching staff understands it. And he has his moments where he does good things in key lineups with the Lakers. Also hard to believe Alex Caruso is already almost 27. The, the journey's the journey's going to be over before it began. Um, Duncan Robinson for the Heat kind of fits that. He's like 26 and a half. So I think the improvement you saw from last year, you don't have a huge change this year. But I mean, a team like the Celtics are also probably benefiting a little from this effect, although I don't know how hugely different they are from their their regular season version. But I talked about this in his video, you know, Jason Tatum started to really accelerate as a player at the end of January into February this year. And that was one set of skills that he kind of leveled up. And then we had the break, and now he's come back, and he seems to be adding passing reads and improving his playmaking, being able to handle certain either pick and roll or kind of uh, like trap reads a little better than he did before. So you have all these things that are clearly improving a player like him. He's still in, quote, his third season, uh, 22 and a half years old. This is right when we would expect 
to see this kind of growth. I wrote an article for Nylon Calculus a couple years ago projecting wings like Jason Tatum as a playmaker and where he could go as a playmaker and when we would see that growth and why. And this is the exact time period. You start to become a larger focal point as a scorer and that gives you insight. It gives you reps against defenses responding to your scoring. You get to go away for four months. You get to look at film. You get to step back. You get to look at this. And then you come back and all of a sudden your reads are not only better, but your passes are faster. They're quicker. They're tighter. These are the things. And if you look at Tatum, his offensive box plus minus in my model has improved from 1.6 plus 1.6 in the regular season to plus 2.3 in the playoffs. Even though I think for some of us, relative to his jump, it doesn't even feel like he's having an insanely different playoffs or something like that. But these are all the factors. Celtics have Jalen Brown, they have Grant Williams, they have Rob Williams, they have other young players who could make the team different than if you played the tournament six months ago. We could talk about Michael Porter Jr. for the Nuggets. I don't know how much he's added, but I mean, he's 22 years old. He's in his first season to get an offseason. I think he clearly came back into the bubble. Sharper, crisper, better decision-making. Certainly his his athleticism and physicality, just recovering from the injuries he's had, uh, looks better than it ever has. So that's a thing. But the two big players who this probably applies to most, one of them was Donovan Mitchell. He only had the single series against the Nuggets in the first round, but a crazy, one of the all-time crazy scoring series in NBA history, averaged 38 points per 75 possessions, plus 13% true shooting. That's what happens when you have 250-point games in a series. And I thought we just saw clear improvement on his shooting, his pull-up shooting game, all that kind of stuff. Mitchell, by the way, is 24 years old. The other player that this really applies to is Jamal Murray. And Jamal Murray's in his fourth season. Mitchell's in his third season. Jamal Murray's in his fourth season. And Jamal Murray is not even 24. He's like 23 and a half. Which is really funny because to to illustrate this point, if you go to Basketball Reference and you look at his age during his 2020 season, it's still 22. This is his age 22 season because his birthday is right after the February 1st cutoff that is used. And here we are in September still going, and he's like 23, he's over 23 and a half in his age 22 season. And he's had visible changes. I talked about this a little bit in the latest video I've done on the Nuggets. We had a five thoughts on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel on the Nuggets earlier in the bubble, talking about areas he could improve. He's had clear jumps in his body, the 10 pounds or so that he added, the strength, the burst that's helped his balance. It has tied back into a stronger pull-up game. Uh, His shooting does seem more dialed in. We don't know how much that's going to stay, but I think all of the strength, the strength that he's added to his body and his game have sort of at least potentially leveled off that shooting stroke and the way he likes to get into shots. His shot making has been incredible. And if you regress it way down and still say, okay, he's a 38% three-point shooter instead of a 47% three-point shooter, that's still better than where he was before. That's still a real meaningful improvement. And all of this aggression and the way he's played has 
increased his playmaking ability. It's increased the shots he can create for teammates. Um, so how good is Murray, just based on what we've seen, is one interesting question. And that's the lesson, right? That's the takeaway. We, we don't have the normal samples that we use to evaluate these players usually. In the regular season, we can see how they play against tough defenses. We can see how they play against different defenses. We can see how they match up against teams they're going to run into in the playoffs to say like, okay, do they have six? Is there a carry over there? Did something change? We, we don't have any of that information. In essence, all of our Jamal Murray information from the 2020 season is outdated. And so here we're trying to evaluate a player and say, how good is this guy based on really just based on the last 18 games? against three different opponents. As an aside, uh, when I hear a lot of people say, you know, Denver only has one all-star, think about how incredibly strange and outdated that is. It's kind of, you won't hear me use this word a lot, but it's kind of just wrong. It's wrong to apply last year's all-star team to these circumstances just because the craziness of 2020 says we're still in the 2020 season. And I guess that's another way to look at it. We're not really in the 2020 season. Like, technically we are, but that's the asterisk component. It's just a technicality because these guys have all had an offseason to improve and Murray is clearly a different player. How good is he is a harder question. That's where we get into the, the big lesson of the bubble, which is like, how do we evaluate players and what can we say when we have limited information? Obviously, that's going to create uncertainty. I, I think this is awesome. I think this is super fun, by the way. This is really, really interesting. In, in this case, there's a practical ramification to the way we talk about these teams. And that's the segue, I think, from I've been talking about players, but this whole thing applies to teams as well. The idea that Denver has only one all-star is a little strange to me. They clearly have two all-stars. Now, I'm tipping my cap. I am I am conceding that from what I've seen from Jamal Murray, he's an all-star level player. But we still have such a small sample, and the bubble is so strange, and Murray himself is such a hot and cold kind of, I called it flow state in the last video. Like He gets in these places and these comfort zones where he really excels as a player, and when those are taken away, he can disappear a little bit. So what does this look like in the long term? What does this look like when he isn't shooting 47% or whatever it is from downtown? Because that number will come down. Is he an all-NBA player? I, I don't know. I think he certainly has the potential to be there. He's, he's certainly shown that he has the potential to be at that level where next season... I mean, <laughs> we don't even know right now what's going to happen with the 2021 season. But assuming we moved forward regularly and this was a new season that wrapped up in April of 2021 on another normal non-pandemic year would he be a candidate for an all-NBA team based on what we've seen so far early on I think so can we say that for certain I'm not comfortable saying that for certain and that's the challenge of the small sample evaluation. What I am comfortable saying is you have an all-star level player. You have, a, you have a really good offensive player now. So what does that mean about the Nuggets? The Nuggets went from 
Jokic, clearly one all-star, to Murray, now a second all-star, not just a second all-star, a second all-star, as I mentioned in the recent video, that fits with him very well. They have tremendous chemistry, both on offense. These are offensively slanted players that give you arguably the best just pure offensive duo in the sport. We can split hairs about you know whether some other offensive duos are better in a vacuum. But I do think when you consider the chemistry that they have and the way that they both excel and like to play, that Jokic two-man game with the handoffs, a pick and you know high high pick and roll, spread pick and roll, any off-ball cuts where you have Jokic kind of operating and Murray doing his thing. I mean, that that whole game is really high-level offense. We're seeing it in the postseason. It's what I came back to last week when I said, you know, my original instinct was that the Lakers were just going to shut this thing down. And I didn't think it was that black and white on that end of the court. Like what I saw in the regular season and what we know Denver has improved and Murray has improved on in this bubble situation made me think that they were good enough to even have some level of success against a defense like the Lakers, even if it wasn't the same level of success that we saw against a weaker defense like the Clippers. And I think that's panned out through four games. And this this is where the evaluation process and the small sample process becomes so interesting and so challenging. Because I've focused on players, but think about teams for a second. Think about, okay, we've got 15 to 20 games maybe tops. Denver's played 18 playoff games. So for most teams, it's not even that. Like, let's say 10 to 15 playoff games to evaluate these teams at the team level to really come back to that idea earlier and say, okay, forget winning and losing. We, we, we have to account for the opponent's strength and the situation and who was healthy, but really how good was that team? Like, how good were the Clippers this year? It's hard to say. With the Nuggets, I am pretty comfortable where we stand today that they have a really high-level offense. They still struggle at times defensively. They're probably either a piece away or just upgrades away from being a really, really, really elite, like incredible offense. And in a way, that's how good they are, right? They're actually really good. They're just close, but not quite at the extremely elite level. And where does that put them as a team in the grand scheme of the playoffs? You know, would that equate to a team that usually has like a plus five or plus six point differential over the course of a regular season and that holds that in the postseason? I don't know. Maybe something like that sounds reasonable. To be clear, when I talk about the true quality of a team, I'm not saying, you know, who won last night's game right? Because you can play a game and the weaker team can can win the game. Now, from a certain definition, the team that scored more points was the better team, period, done, end of story. Uh, just to be clear, I'm saying if they play enough, if they keep playing, you know, we know a team who scores the opening bucket doesn't always win the game, but if the game stopped there, you could make the definition, you could make the argument by definition that they were better. It's sort of a tautological argument. I'm not saying that. And I go into detail in Thinking Basketball, the book, on why these small samples, even seven-game series, aren't enough. Uh, If you're interested in that more, I'll point you toward that because 
here today, I kind of want to talk about something slightly different. Let's say, for example, right now, this each series in the East and the West is four games old. It is. I don't know why I said for, for example. If you're listening in the future, uh, four games into each series, okay? Now, there are only three possible series scores after four games in an NBA series. That's it. There's only three. The series can be over in a sweep. It can be tied at 2-2, or one of the teams can be ahead 3-1. Sweep, 2-2, or one of the teams can be ahead 3-1. In this case, in reality, the East and the West series are 3-1. Now, an interesting thought experiment is to think about how often, when teams are really close, can the close games bounce to the same team enough that after four games, the series won't be 2-2, will be 3-1. And sometimes, although I think it's pretty rare, uh, based on the research I did back when I was writing Thinking Basketball, it's pretty rare that you'll get really, really close teams and it'll bounce a certain way that even with competitive games, it's a sweep. You have like four competitive close games and one team's one team wins all four. But that does happen. That will happen sometimes. Remember that. You'll have two really close teams. And by definition, one team has to win the close game. And the thinking is that, well, if there were three close games and one team won two and the other team won one, that the team that won two must be better. They must either be better overall or they must be better by, by virtue of being better at winning close games. But that's not true. And the reason it's not true is because the sample size isn't large enough, right? To illustrate this just as simply as possible, by definition, create two basketball teams that are exactly the same. Have them play three close games. They cannot be the same. It's either one team wins all three or one team wins two and the other wins one. And that's often where we are. Like I kind of feel like both of these series have that element. If you think about the Nuggets and the Lakers series, the first game where the Nuggets maybe were a little hungover from the Clippers series, from their second consecutive 3-1 comeback. Oh, and by the way, I a great tweet on, on Twitter that I saw this week uh, where the Nuggets, you know, the Nuggets are now leading the series 1-3 to because uh, they've had so many comebacks coming down from 3-1. So we'll see what happens there. But even just this idea that after four games, if they've played three close games, the first game, uh, the Lakers kind of really put them away. But the last three games have been incredibly competitive. One of them was a buzzer beater. Uh, the Nuggets were able to hold on in the second game. And last night's game, well, that, was a, that was a close game. That was a legit close game. So when they play three close games, one of the teams has to win two even if by definition they're exactly the same. And this is this is why it's it feels like a lot of games. Well, they played four games. They played six games. We know who's better. It feels like a lot of games, but it's not. And it's actually difficult to say, you know, in a four-game sample, what is the quality of this team? Who's clearly a better team? Sometimes a team is just clearly better. But if we stick with the Nuggets and the Lakers the Nuggets are still getting pretty good stuff on offense. The Lakers are still kind of getting 
Lakery things on offense as well. Um, and you can try to come up with shot quality metrics and things like this. It's very challenging to evaluate in a small sample because of this. And you kind of have to look, you know, okay, is it is it shooting luck? Did a team have a bunch of wide open shots that they normally make and they miss them? I don't think so in this case. The, the Boston-Miami series is even a clearer case to me. In the Boston-Miami Miami series, the Celtics had double-digit leads in the second half in the first three games, and they lost two of those games. Just about every game in the series has come down, you know, the first game was in overtime. Uh, the game the other night comes down to the, to the final moments. Like, this has been an extremely close series. Close enough that coming into the series, I thought Boston was a little better, like a, like a 60-40 kind of thing. Uh, and I thought there were more ways the Celtics could win. And I'm not even sure watching the games that that's an inaccurate assessment of what's unfolded on the court. But when you lose a bunch of close games in really competitive series, it tilts that, it tilts that perspective. This is where the power of something like winning bias, one of the core chapters of Thinking Basketball, the book, this is where this comes in so strongly. Because we know that there are tactical elements that matter. They're, t- you know, switching to zone defense, your substitutions, uh, how you adjust to a pick and roll to get one side empty, uh, the, the player you put on the court to space to the corner. Like, we know all these things matter. But what happens is when the series is 3-1 instead of 2-2, which it will be a lot of the time, we focus on all the reasons the team with three is succeeding and when the other team is down 3-1, we focus on all the reasons that they're failing. That's the essence of, of the winning bias. And the, the psychological effect is so darn powerful that we can know the winning bias. We can understand it. We can observe it. We can agree with it. We can see it. You can be in my position and you could write the, the chapter on it, literally, And you're still sitting there going through film, going through data, and your instinct is to go, boy, how, how is this team up three, one? Let's look at all the good things that, okay. So Spolster made that adjustment and this guy's making this play and Tyler hero did this. And if they're succeeding, then we must go over to the Celtics and say, why did Dennis Cantor play here? And what was Jason Tatum thinking here? And why did Marcus Smart do this? That's the power of it. It, it, it has a gravitational pull like the size of a giant star. The reality is probably more like when a series is close, yes, going zone or putting the full court press on or all of these tactical changes have an impact. But it's very rare to see something like a huge counter fundamentally shifting the strength of the series because the other team has no answer. Uh, an example off the top of my head is putting Andrew Bogut on Tony Allen in the 2015 series between the Warriors and Memphis. And that's just an example. I don't remember enough about that series to really know if there's massive video and data evidence that that was just like a landslide shift that Memphis had no answer for. But at least my memory, my hunch is that that would be a good example of that. I think, I think hopefully you follow the point in theory that that can happen. That can happen sometimes. Some tactical change 
can you won't see it because they'll only play three more games, right? You go down to one, and then the other team waltzes through the next three games. But when you're looking at film, and you're looking at the numbers and the success rates in these small samples, and football teams struggles struggle with this constantly because they only play like 70 downs a game, and they have wildly different formations, it's hard to know when things are really close how effective they are. When they're not close and there's a clear gap, and you can say, okay, Bogut there and Iguodala there and Draymond Green at center there and this lineup, they never came back with an answer for that. That's one thing. They were outscored by 30 points per 100 over, you know, more than five minutes or something. And it wasn't hot shooting or whatever. They were just It was a layup line. That's one thing. But when you go through some of these series, and the Heat Celtics series has this feel to me, you have one team on one end having success in some areas, being bogged down in other areas, and you just go through the, okay, what about versus the zone? Uh, what about when they have this lineup on? What about when they go small? What about when they run this action for Kemba Walker? On and on and on. It's very difficult to tease out whether this is like, is it truly a 2-2 series that is 3-1? And what we end up doing is saying, you know, when they play man, I'll just use the example of zone and man. When they play man, Boston might have an offensive rating of 110. But when they play that zone, Boston can't score. Their offensive rating is 60 or whatever. And we know that's not how basketball works. In reality, Boston might have a 110 offensive rating against man and a 105 or 106 offensive rating against zone. And that's just in the particular adjustments we saw. Maybe if they tinker with it more and get better at it, maybe it's 108 versus 110. And those things matter. But in the short term, in small samples, they're extremely difficult to figure out. And what we're left with is sort of the the power and the force of winning bias compelling us to say, why did this team win? Look at all the great things the Heat did. Look at where the Celtics fail. Look at, look at everything the Lakers do that the Nuggets have no answer for. And look at all the areas where the Nuggets couldn't succeed. And we forget to go through and say, well, look at all the areas the Nuggets succeeded in and the Lakers struggled to counter. Look at all the areas the Celtics had success with and the Heat struggled with. Maybe this is actually a really close series. And maybe, just maybe, the better team isn't even ahead three to one. Remember to check out theathletic.com slash thinking basketball for that $1 a month deal. It's a limited time offer through October 9th. Otherwise, if you want to help support this podcast and all things thinking basketball, head over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball. There we've got additional content. I put out director's cuts videos of what you see on YouTube. Sometimes there are Patreon only videos. We've got a historical database of stats just live this week. We've got the 2020 uh, playoff stats that I use with uh, my box plus minus model, all kinds of other things related to passer rating, shot creation on all the players in the 2020 bubble. That's patreon.com slash thinking basketball. There are different tiers to help support there. uh, And that is a great way, really the best way uh, to directly support this show. Otherwise, Let me know your thoughts on this one at LG35 at Twitter. Hope you enjoyed it. 
Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. And wherever you are, I hope you're having a great day.